You are not a real writer until you put something out in public, until it's you're willing to be scrutinized and criticized. I got so much feedback. I think that that's when I realized that it's like, oh, wait, people were sending me this critical feedback because they wanted to get better because they enjoyed reading it. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Polina Marinova-Pompliano. She's the founder and author of the hugely popular newsletter, The Profile. The Profile is a newsletter which started as a side project when she was full-time at Fortune magazine, and she's since turned it into a paid newsletter and her full-time job. The Profile studies the most successful and interesting people in business, entertainment, tech, sports, and more, with the goal of sharing the lessons from the most exceptional people and businesses. It's been read and promoted by people like Dwayne Johnson, that's The Rock, and Alexis Ohanian, who's an investor and the founder of Reddit. This episode really is an essential listen for any online creators or aspiring online creators. We go deep into the details. We talk about how the newsletter started as a project for family and friends, why perfectionism kills ideas because it builds expectations, why you should write for yourself and not the audience, when to leave your job, and what it's like being in a relationship with two entrepreneurs. This is the first episode of season three, so please reach out and let me know what you think. You can reach me on Twitter or hello at outofhours.org, or you can leave a review. Getting a new review is always the highlight of my week, so if you fancy it, please do leave a review. Instead of seeing something as a means to an end or, um, you know, doing like this, this concept of like a side hustle and like trying to get to something else mm-hmm. and, you know, having a goal in mind and trying to monetize straight away and all that kind of stuff. I got the impression that the profile started more from a sense of kind of curiosity and interest rather than like 10 year plan. I want to get to this in, in this period of time. Totally. And I'd love to kind of go back right to the beginning. And I know that there's this kind of fallacy sometimes of the apple dropping from the tree and like, you know, oh, and then this inspiration came to me. But I was curious if you remember what actually drove you to set up the newsletter in the first place. Yeah, I do. Um, It was 2017. And at the time, there was a lot going on in media. Media was going through one of its cycles of layoffs and trying to figure out its strategy. So There were a lot of articles that were written in various um, publications that were basically just like rewritten articles. They were, somebody would break a story and then everybody else would rewrite their article without actually talking to, doing interviews. It was just, I don't know, it felt very clickbaity to me and it wasn't in depth and I was kind of getting tired of that. So um, my coworkers and I on Slack would send each other really 
deep, long form profiles that we enjoyed reading that week. I had always really been interested in the profile format specifically, because I think you can learn a lot from the perspective of a person than just this like theoretical feature on something. So we would send each other these things back and forth. And in 2017, newsletters weren't really big in the same sense that they are today. It was more about, I'm going to start a personal newsletter. So all these reporters had personal newsletters, meaning that they would compile whatever articles they had written that week and send it to family and friends. And I was like, what if I did the same thing, except instead of my own articles, I included articles from the New York Times, the New Yorker, GQ, all these places that I read these profiles. And I just like put them in one email, send them to family and friends, and we can have really good, interesting conversations about the profiles. To me, it was more of a conversation starter and how can I get better conversations and ideas with family and friends and just talking about superficial stuff that, you know, we see in the news all the time. Part of the reason it started as a curation is because I was working at Fortune full time. So I could not create original content for anything else, whether it was another media company or my own. But at the time, again, I did not see this as a business or anything at all. I just saw it as like, Something that I did on the side for myself because I was getting kind of uh, burnt out at work. What I think is so interesting is, is going back to that like first chapter of when you were at Fortune and, and kind of when you first created it. Often people create side projects and things that are completely separate from their work. They've fulfilled by the things that they want to do in their work and they kind of have something else, like often a creative kind of endeavor that they want to do. But I think your story is interesting because they're both writing or they're both in, in the same similar kind of field. And I was curious how you found that. Did it contribute to your burnout or did you find it like a creative release? Yeah, I definitely found it as a creative release just because when I was at Fortune, at the time that I started um, the profile, I was only 25 and I was nowhere in the position um, at Fortune to be writing long form, deep profiles for like magazine length uh, type features. I was writing like the day-to-day tech coverage um, at Fortune, which was fine. It's just not exactly what I ultimately saw myself doing. And because I really enjoyed profiles, I was like, I'm just going to be reading these things and talking about these things, even though I myself cannot write them yet. Um, So it, it became kind of like a creative outlet for me because in the evenings and on weekends, I would work on the profile and I didn't see it as like work. I was like, I get to put together my email. Like I didn't even call it a newsletter. It was an email at the time. I think the first tweet that I ever put out promoting it, I was like, Hey guys, if you know me, you know, I love profiles, started an email here to share them with family and friends, sign up if you want to. It was very, very, very casual. I remember at the time, somebody at work told me, why would you start this when nobody's even gonna, you're you're at most gonna get like 200 signups. Why would you do this? And I'm like, it's not about the growth or the magnitude of people who can sign up for me. It's like, let me just do this. So I have something creative that I put out into the world every week. I think lots of people with side projects will resonate to two things. One, having those comments, which is like, why would you do this when this already exists? (laughs) Often people who aren't doing this stuff, who come out with those comments, the kind of tension that you brought up, I think is really common as well for people that I've spoken to. That tension of like, I'm doing this for me and it's really enjoyable. It's my own kind of self-learning and growth. But then there's also this just pressure 
that whether you feel it from other people or sometimes put it on yourself, which is like, this should be growing, this should be, you know, monetized. I'm spending so much time on this. You know, I've heard that from so many people like, oh, I'm feeling, you know, this isn't growing quickly enough, even though they know they started it because they love it. Did you have that kind of internal turmoil or were you really clear, like, this is for my own enjoyment? You know, <laughs> it's really funny you asked that because I was recently thinking, I like Substack wasn't even around when I started this. So I started on Tiny Letter, which I believe the like the threshold before they kick you off and you have to move on to MailChimp is 500 subscribers. So I was doing my best to not hit it because I didn't want to move to another platform where you have to pay and whatever. Tiny Letter is free. It's easy to use. So I was like, as long as I stay under the 500, it's totally fine. But I still remember in the beginning, it truly was people I knew. So I would get a notification in my email every time somebody signed up because so rarely would people sign up. So it was people like my family, friends, and a few coworkers, basically. I knew every name on that list. So if you go back and you look at my tiny letter archives, the voice is very, very casual. I make awful, stupid jokes that don't make any sense to anybody who's outside of that group. But then I remember the first time that a person who I did not know signed up. And I was like, oh, it completely shifts your thinking. I'm now writing for an audience, right? <laughs> not my family and friends, but it is interesting. So the profile today has like tens of thousands of subscribers, but it took me two full years. I remember I hit it on December 31st, 2018. So all of 2017 and all of 2018, it took me two years uh, to get to 5,000 subscribers. And I added an additional 5,000 subscribers in like the last month. So it just like compounds on itself, even though for the first few years when I was at Fortune, I wasn't allowed to do proper marketing and like sign up for my newsletter. I wasn't supposed to be promoting my thing that wasn't part of Fortune. But at Fortune, they knew you were doing it, right? Because you had colleagues yeah. in the newsletter. Do you think you kind of inadvertently kept yourself small because you were working at Fortune or do you think you were just too busy working on something full time? Probably both, but I think it was um it was a weird thing because I don't think Fortune ever saw it as a threat. I, I never thought it would be anything more than the 500 people. And because of that mindset, I think nobody actually took it seriously. Also People didn't know who the hell I was. It took me a while to build up my brand and my name and people knew me as like a reporter. And at Fortune, I ended up writing a few profiles. So that gave me credibility and legitimacy that then helped the profile. I wanted to get onto this a bit later, but I think now is a good time to talk about it, which is just around how motivation and intention impacts your creativity and your writing. There is a difference when, when a side project becomes external in that way, when something becomes from a hobby to a side project and then eventually sometimes to a business that changes the way that you see it, changes your intentions and your motivations. Was that like a tipping point when you thought, OK, I need to change kind of how I'm thinking about this? Yes, although I think that the profile probably wouldn't have been successful if I started it as mindset is business. I have a business plan. How do I make this a business versus this is a hobby. This is an interest. This is something I genuinely enjoy doing. And I don't care if people sign up. So when external people started signing up, I started to uh, professionalize my voice a little bit in, in, I wasn't as juvenile in my writing and it helped me become a better writer. I genuinely believe that you are not a real 
writer <laughs> until you put something out in public, until it's you're willing to be scrutinized and criticized and people, I mean, complete, like I got so much feedback that I was like, who is this person? But this is super valuable. And they didn't have to send me that, right? But you, you reach a level of, I think that that's when I realized that it's like, oh, wait, people were sending me this critical feedback because they wanted to get better because they enjoy reading it, not because they just want to like criticize somebody on the internet. In the beginning, it's interesting when you're doing something solely for yourself and your family and friends and your mom says, I don't like the GIF in your newsletter. You're like, oh, mom, what do you know? But then when three or four people you don't know say that to you, you're like, oh, so you're random readers on the internet and you don't like the GIF. That's interesting. So once you start hearing something over and over again, you change it. I took out the GIF. I fixed the links. I changed the format a little bit. But the, the very essence and the bones of the profile is very much still the same. And this reminds me of something that I talked to Brandon Stanton about. He is the creator of Humans of New York, really, really popular Facebook blog or Facebook thing. He basically started Humans of New York, again, not as a business, not as a movement, not as like anything like that. He started because he hated his job um, as a bond trader, whatever he was working at. And he was like, I don't want to work in finance. I want to photograph people. I don't know what that means, but I'm just going to go out on the street. And my goal is to photograph 10,000 people in New York City. So every day he would post a photo on Facebook of a portrait. But at the time, he didn't have a little caption, what he's like now known for. But his point is, if I hadn't ever started in that really flawed way, Humans of New York would have never evolved to where it is today. So the point is, whether it's a hobby or a side project or something you really enjoy doing, by the act, the very act of just getting started helps you improve because I could not have launched the profile in its current form today if I hadn't started with a really bad format on Tiny Letter. It's interesting because so many people, I think, get put off doing that, especially really talented people, actually, like real yes. artists, real writers, the people who don't really want to be public. And, they, and it's so vulnerable what they're writing and what they're painting and what they're making that they don't want to put it out there. I mean, those are the people that should be out there the most. If anyone's listening to this now who you know, who is making something that's deeply personal, but they think would be useful to someone else. Yeah. Do you have any advice or any tips or anything that you've come across that, that helped you kind of put yourself out there? Yeah, I think that perfectionism kills more things than anything ever, anything else ever that does. Because when you're a perfectionist, you can work on a project for two years before launching it. And then you weirdly subconsciously have this expectation that I've worked on this for so long and I've made it so good that when I put it out there, it's going to take off. And you put these like crazy expectations on yourself that likely, even if you're Van Gogh, like it will not happen just because maybe you don't have the distribution. Maybe people don't know about it yet. Maybe you need to like be in the right environment and you're in the wrong section on the internet, whatever. That's the one thing I don't have, I don't think, uh, which has really, really helped me be successful with the profile is that I don't have an eye for um, like design. And a lot of these newsletter pl platforms are like, oh, I can help you, uh, you know, 
there's all these features on the platform. You can, it's like, no, you need to have the bones of your project need to be high quality before any of the fluff we do to make it pretty. So I think by putting something ugly, like you said, out into the world, it can always become better because you have the taste and because you are the right person for that project. I think Malcolm Gladwell says, aim to be interesting rather than perfect, because interesting is um, what leaves that aftertaste in your mouth. So books, movies, things that are kind of done imperfectly are the ones that you tend to remember. Nobody remembers like, oh, there was a really beautiful newsletter. Like if it's interesting to you, you, you'll keep subscribing no matter what it looks like. Focus on the bones of the thing. Don't focus on the beautiful packaging at first. I think this is the thing I'm here most often with people with, especially newsletters and also no, mainly newsletters, actually, which is what do I do? Do I write something that I find is really interesting and write about topics that I find interesting, even if they're a bit disparate from one another? So maybe the positioning's a bit off people. It's, it's a bit unpredictable. It's just stuff I find interesting. Or do I think about like an audience and have, um, you know, persona in mind like you would with a business? What's your view on that? What do you think makes a great newsletter? Absolutely. You should write about things that you personally find interesting for a few reasons. One, you if you do the latter where you're writing for an audience and you're trying to guess what they want, you will not find it personally interesting and you will eventually burn out because you're like, I'm just doing this for other people. I am not actually learning anything myself and I'm not I'm not enjoying it. So maybe you do it for a year or two and then you're like, peace out. I had this uh, I'm not very passionate about this. When you write for yourself, I honestly can tell you, I never think about like the audience or the reader. There's tens of thousands of them. I have no idea. Some of them, I've gotten emails from people in their eighties, from people when they're, eight, when they're 18, like there's, they're all spread out age-wise, you know, who, geography-wise, it's hard to put them in a box. Um, but there's a psychographic element where it's like these people are curious, they're interested, they're probably interesting, and they like to learn from people. So knowing those things, I am also personally interested in that. And when I find something interesting, I'm like, damn, they're going to really think this is interesting. And I think it's Morgan Housel who said, who says this, he says, practice selfish writing, selfish writing, meaning you write for yourself and you do it so much that eventually if you really do have good taste and if you're a good curator or writer you will attract the people that are also interested in that subject no matter how random it is i subscribe to a newsletter about grief like how <laughs> it's so it's so different um in terms of like how are you going to find somebody who will think that's interesting maybe one person who has never lost a person close to them and never really had to go through the grieving process to someone who has lost a bunch of friends and family uh, in a tragic accident and they read it for that reason. Everybody has different reasons, but as long as you do what's right for you, you're not going to burn out. The other thing I wanted to ask around how much you box yourself in, because mm. there does come a point, right, I assume, where you need an elevator pitch, which is, you know, you come, you meet someone uh, at a party or something and you say, oh, I run this thing called The Profile, we do X. You know, you need a one-liner, but obviously with that one-liner does come some creative constraint do you think that's a positive thing or have you ever found a point where you're like I want to write about something else that isn't a profile yeah the pitch is we feature stories of uh, really successful and interesting people and companies 
Then when you sign up for the profile, you get um, an email on Sunday, which does have curated profiles of interesting people and companies. But at the top, there's a column. And that column <laughs> is written by me. And it could range like from a Q&A with someone to a profile of someone to literally my thoughts on uh, why I think cults are fascinating. So it's interesting because maybe the cult aspect of what I'm writing about doesn't have anything to do with a profile, but it's um, it typically resonates with the readers because they get an insight into what I'm thinking about or how I'm, what I'm working on that week or something like that. It's a little bit more of a personal corner. So it's loosely tied, but the reason, like the best advice I have for people is when you start something, make sure that you give yourself optionality. So most people box themselves in and they back themselves into a corner. Uh, and, and when I was thinking about the profile, I thought of all sorts of things. At first, I was like, maybe I'll only do profiles of people in business because I was like, this is on brand. I work at Fortune Magazine. It makes sense. But then I was like, I'm not, that's not that interesting to me. I like profiles of Justin Bieber and Britney Spears and whatever. So how, what about those people? There wasn't a newsletter, as far as I knew, about um, profiles. So my niche would be people, but in profiles, that type of format, but it's broad in that it's across any industry, politics, sports, science, entertainment, business, tech, et cetera. That gives me the optionality. I was talking to James Clear about this, who wrote Atomic Habits, and I asked him, why did you name your website James Clear? Why is your blog named James Clear and not Atomic Habits? And he said, again, same reason. I want optionality because James Clear is not always going to want to write about habits, but habits was the topic that he noticed people most resonated with. So he doubled down on that, but now mm -hmm. he's maybe pulling away and maybe in the future we'll write about financial literacy or <laughs> habits in investing or something a little bit broader than just like habits of the self. It's so interesting because it definitely is a challenge because if you think about people right at the beginning of their journey, he has a different challenge because he's at a maturity in, in his journey, right? Which is like, mm -hmm. he's nailed a particular niche and now he kind of doesn't want to be typecast by that particular niche and so he wants to broaden out. The other thing is when people are right at the beginning, sometimes people are like, oh, I'll just go really, really broad and I'll just write about what, what I find interesting, which I do think is the right approach, but sometimes it can just be really confusing, especially if they don't have a public profile and they don't have a name. Yeah. So I feel like the kind of advice is quite conflicting. Yes. It can be quite confusing for people because they're like, okay, so I'll write a niche and then I'll widen out. Or they're like, okay, I'll just build a personal brand, but how do I do that? Like, what would be your advice for people right at the beginning, you know, when they haven't even started a newsletter? I would say experiment. So there, every, every time I have a problem that I don't know the answer to, I'm like, why am I trying to guess what people want? Why don't I just ask them? So I either like ask the readers or I run a survey or something like that. It's interesting. So James Clear, he always was James Clear, but we didn't know that obviously. So when he was first starting out, he wrote about a bunch of different topics, including habits, relationships, whatever. So he, he put things out there to kind of see what people resonated with most. And, and he looked at analytics, like all like quantitative scientific things, instead of just like, oh, I wonder what I should write about today. He chose habits because of the demand. And then he zoomed in, now he's zooming out. But I think like in the beginning, especially if you're trying to find what your niche, ask people, 
close people, you know, send something to family and friends, say, give me your brutal feedback. You know, try like Twitter is a good way to just test things, say something, see how people react, write something, see how, what they say, like, because you can't be sure. Like I, I had no idea. And that that's, yeah. So I think like, if you have absolutely no idea, try a few things, see what resonates and then double down on that thing. You can always eventually zoom out and expand uh, later. There's kind of two tips there just to kind of distill it. And I think the first one is almost like ask yourself, what do people come to me for? And people say that as like yes. career advice as well, right? They say like, oh, you know, ask people, you know, if people are always coming to you for relationship advice, maybe you'd be a good, you know, counselor or a therapist and stuff. I think it's probably true. Like, what, or even if people aren't coming to you with anything, what do I constantly find myself talking about? I interviewed um, Benedict Evans, who also runs a newsletter. Yeah. And he um, said something great, which was like, what is the thing that you've talked about three times over the last week? Or, you know, like, what is that thing that like, you keep finding yourself coming back to? Because that's the thing you're authentically interested in. You know, that's the thing you're bringing up with other people. I know that you've said building a brand around your name is a really powerful thing to do. Okay, so <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> so because I've studied so many people, the people that I find most fascinating and the people I find most successful in their lives have been people like Martha Stewart, Kim Kardashian of all people, because they have over decades been able to reinvent time and time again. Kim Kardashian went from reality TV star, sex tape to entrepreneur and lawyer and whatever. But like, it's really hard to go from here to like selling clothes in LA to, uh, you know, trying to be a lawyer and, and, and people taking you seriously. Martha Stewart, like, you know, she was really big for my grandmother's generation, but then she had insider trading and people were like, this is career suicide. You're never going to make it out. She did. Now she's doing collaborations with Snoop Dogg and doing CBD and all this stuff. And, and that appeals to my generation. So what, like, what is it about those people that they've been able to reinvent themselves so well? It's because one, their name is their brand. And two, because they, they, they were authentic to their core audience. The, that core audience was so, um, so loyal and uh, they, they liked the person and the brand so much that they were willing to go wherever the person went. That's why when I was at Fortune, I was really nervous that when I left, my whole audience would leave because I was like, they know me as a reporter at Fortune. Like, will they follow me onto this next phase of my life? And they did because time and time again, I've, I've explained and been transparent about what I'm doing and what my goal is. And I think that that's how you broaden. If you're in a box, start having that conversation and, and like transparency is the best thing. And career, work, relationships, everything, by being transparent, people know you're not lying and people know that they can trust you. Even if you say, I said this and I was wrong. I tried this and it didn't work out. That builds trust. So as long as you have a very good, direct, trusting relationship with the audience, I think they will, they will follow you and stay with you every step of the way. James Clear, if tomorrow he started writing about relationships, I would still go read James Clear because I trust him and I like his writing and I like his thinking. So the more that you can show your audience, your consumer, your user, the way you think, 
And if they like that, they will stay with you no matter what you do next. I think it's such a liberating thought. And I think it's so important for people to remember that because especially people actually who don't have passion projects, side projects, things mm-hmm. that are kind of testament to like these silly sort of, you know, very internal parts of ourselves. I think if people don't have any of that or hobbies or, you know, whatever it is, it, you know, if you suddenly find that you don't like your job anymore, you know, you're not suddenly like, oh, I, I always saw myself as the, um, I don't know, like accountant. And suddenly I really don't like accountancy. And now what the hell? It's so mentally distressing. For oh, people, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and that's where people get like really, and then they get in a rut and they feel like, I can't change it now because everyone knows I know myself as the accountant and everyone else knows me as the accountant. And I think that thing that you've just said is so important for, for everyone to really realize, which is that actually the stuff that they that the people are most afraid of, which is let's say like authenticity and being honest and, you know, being yourself and putting yourself out there are actually the things that allow you to be yourself and make the changes that they actually aren't the things that kind of peg you into a particular thing. Yeah, it's 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 about continuously being aware that you're not tying your identity to whatever you do as a main job and that you have at least another identity to fall back on. If you're this lawyer that everybody knows Dave is a lawyer, but you want to be a bodybuilder, start doing something on the side, start an Instagram, start a whatever about bodybuilding that if ever something went wrong in your professional career, you can fall back on your other identity. The way we're talking about it sounds actually almost like a bit, not negative, but kind of like, oh, it's an insurance. It's something like in case something goes wrong. Mm. But it's actually also really positive. And the Sartre thing I was going to say is there's, he talks about authenticity and he talks about the waiter. And there's this passage where it's like, basically says he's like ham acting as a waiter because he's got this idea of what a waiter is in his head. And he's being what he thinks a waiter is probably makes you a less good waiter than if you're just more self-aware, which is like, I really like making people happy. And I really like you know, telling people about food and learning about food and, you know, just deconstructing the stuff that you personally find engaging about your work. Those are things you carry with you. Do you know what I mean? So it's not like, oh, I'm no longer a waiter. Ah, I don't know who I am. It's like, I'm no longer a waiter, but I know I really like food or I really like making people happy. Exactly. Like we all really, really like labels and we like certainty, but I think exactly what you said, like be aware of your skills, be aware of what people come to you for and be aware of how you learn. Like I've been doing the profile quote unquote for years before I started it, because whenever I wanted to learn about something, I would look up a person and go down a deep rabbit hole on that person to learn how they navigated their career. And that's how I learned. And the other thing here I would say is that there's a lot of pressure to know what you want to do and to find the right career path and to stick to it and, you know, determination and persistence. But I would say like, ask yourself, who is the person whose job you will be in 10 years from now that you're working towards and go interview that person, call them, message them on LinkedIn, be like, Hey, can we just chat and ask them, what do they like about it? What have they had to give up? What have they had to sacrifice? Do they have a family? Do they have time for their family? Or is it just all at the office? And then ask yourself, do I really want that life? Because a lot of times it looks really flashy and then you get there and you're like, I cannot believe that I didn't know this is what it was going to be like. And if you don't have something on the side that even if it's knitting, even if it's like doing puzzles, you will not be fulfilled. And that's why I think the importance of 
a side project is so important because I never once thought I would be quitting my full-time job at Fortune Magazine to work on the profile full-time, but here we are. It tipped at one point. And at one point I asked myself, what what do I want to do? And will going independent make me happy? And the answer was yes. So I was like, I can always get another job in media. I have the experience. Why not try this now? What was the point when you were like, okay, no, I need to do this full time. Like, was it, was it like a gradual incremental tipping point or was it, you'd been thinking about it for a while? Yes, it was. I can tell you exactly. It was in January of 2020 when I started thinking about it. And I, it started with a question. It started with what would the profile look like if I did it full time? And it wasn't at the time I wasn't making money off of it. It was just the free newsletter. This was again, pre all these reporters leaving their jobs to have a paid newsletter. So I didn't know anybody. I didn't know who to call and ask, but I did know the browser. I I just listened to every podcast that he'd done about doing a newsletter full time. I'm like, this is fascinating. And it made sense how he made money. I sat down and I did the math and I was like, how many paying subscribers would I need to match my salary at Fortune? I did the math. I was like, based on how many free subscribers I have right now, 1% will probably convert. Okay, this is how many I have. And then from there, based on my growth, can I get to X thousand to make my salary work? And in my head, it would take about like six months. In reality, it actually happened faster because you kind of forget that when you're working on something full-time, when you know that that's how you make money, you are relentless about um, making it better and and talking about it more, et cetera. Because while I was at Fortune, I felt uncomfortable talking about my side project (laughs) because I have another job. James Gare, again, he says, uh, you can attract more luck into your life just by telling people what you're working on. So just by saying, hey, I'm working on this thing, people are more likely to discover it and, um, and learn about it. So I started asking that question, but I was very indecisive and I was like up and down and back and forth. And I was like, I don't know. I can't just like quit my job for this. Um, And then I read a profile on Jim Cook, ironically enough. And he, um, he's the founder of Samuel Adams beer. And he had a very, I mean, this is, this is a dilemma. I am not the first person to encounter. Like, do I leave my job for this super uncertain thing? And what he did was he was working at BCG, Boston Consulting Group, making really good money. He had a house, a wife, kids, mortgage, cars, everything. He had a lot of things to worry about that I didn't at the time. And he said, okay, but like, I really want to try like a craft beer company. He didn't have any experience in that, but he really wanted to try it. So he was like, do I leave my job? Do I do this? And he kept going back and forth. And then finally, he asked himself the question, is this dangerous or is this scary? If it's scary, I'm going to do it. But you have to think about like, what is the difference between scary and dangerous? I was afraid of leaving fortune because I was afraid of literally somebody being disappointed in me, like stupid, stupid reasons. But what was dangerous is if I stopped learning and I stayed in my same position for another five years at fortune. And then in five years, I looked back and I was like, damn, I wish I could have done that one thing that I really wanted to do. Once I started looking at it from that lens and I was like, the things that I'm afraid of are just scary. They're not dangerous. I did it. It was scary. You just tell people you quit and all your coworkers are like, what? I can't believe this. Once you get over that and then you're free to do whatever you want. I mean, there's no better feeling. 
thing that's the kind of point that I think is really important to land is the fact you made a plan. You know, you yes. sat down, you did the figures, you know, you knew at least what success would look like. And I think that is yep. so important to say to people because I think there, there's a big kind of culture of like glamorizing entrepreneurship and glamorizing like, you know, starting yes. your own thing. And I think people do it without a plan. Did you, outside of the numbers, like, was there anything else you did to kind of prepare for it? Like, did you save up money? Yes, I did. Um, so yes, that's a very, very, very good point. I am not a risk taker. I don't see myself as like ca- throwing caution to the wind and just jumping whenever I'm like, oh, I don't like my job. I'm just going to quit. Calculated risks means make sure you have savings. Can you get, can you pay your rent for the next six months if you make zero dollars Two, like make sure that you back into the math? Like, if I had looked at the numbers and I looked at the profile's growth and I was like, this is growing so slowly. I'm not going to like, there, there was no way I would have left my job if it was completely improbable that I would have enough growth to justify this. Mm. I, I just, I just calculated in a way I was like, that number that I need to get to is not that big of a number. And I really believe I can get there. And then the third thing I did is before I left fortune, I made a plan of, okay, in, I know that the first week of me leaving and me announcing that I'm leaving and doing this is going to be critical. What are the things that I can do to ensure that um, people everywhere they turn, they see the profile? Once you have momentum, you need to keep it going. And uh, momentum is so important in the very, very early days. Like you can't launch and then six months later be like, you know what? Now is the time. So what I did was I made a list of like, I don't have a lot of subscribers right now, but how can I make it seem as if this thing is massive everywhere people look, there's the profile again. I had set up like a link swap with Morning Brew. I was like, I'll include you in my newsletter if you include me in yours. Then I did one with The Hustle that week. Then I did, um, I went on somebody's podcast. I promoted that. Then I wrote an article about why I was leaving. Like all these things, it was different forms of media. It was podcast, text, like Twitter, newsletters. And um, I just wanted to make sure that I was hitting people like exactly where they were. And that one week, it's still my best week of uh, number of people who have subscribed, but that's good because that's what you want. So almost just make, make a launch plan as well as a like exactly. financial plan. What does your like day-to-day look like now because you're su- such an interesting studier of all these like successful people I'm so <laughs> curious and I think other people will be too how does it translate into your life are you one of those people that get up at like 5 a.m and you have your green smoothies or how- what does it look like so I'm not at all like that which is really funny um I wish I was like that <laughs> I wake up at like nine <laughs> after years of waking up at 5 30 it's really weird. I do my best writing at night. So I've tried to change that. I was like, maybe I can train myself to write better in the after. Like, I I just can't. So I know when I have something that I really want to write, I have to write at like 11 p.m. to 1 a.m., which makes things really interesting in terms of waking up and starting your day. I've basically compartmentalized my week. So Mondays and Tuesdays are reserved for you pick a topic that you want to learn about, then you find the person that best exemplifies that topic, and then you go deep on that person. Uh, Recently, I did a dossier on Vince Gilligan. He is the creator of Breaking Bad. He's a producer, showrunner, writer. 
And I knew absolutely nothing about him. After two days of just consuming <laughs> Vince Gilligan content, I felt like we were friends. Like I, I get it. Like I, I understand how you see the world. And it's really important to like also not just listen to podcasts and uh, read things, but also watch videos about that person because you see like he's he has like kind of a Southern accent. He's a very stoic. He is the opposite of the main character in Breaking Bad. And it's like mind blowing. How did you come up with this twisted dark person when you yourself are such a clean cut, like Southern gentleman? Um, fascinating. But the way he talks, the way he expresses himself, how he uses his hands, like all that stuff um, it is cues to who he is. The do- so, so then on Wednesday, I publish a dossier, which is a deep dive into that person. And the key to those is how do you get to the essence of someone? Because essentially, like you and me, Georgia, like we're probably pretty similar. We like learning. We like people. We like content. We produce, put things out into the world. But how do you get to the very essence of like what makes us us? And it's really, really hard to do, um, especially when you haven't met the person or spent years with them, whatever. So I try my best, like, what are the things you hear them say and emphasize time and time again? How do they um, um, present themselves to the world? What do they do with their free time? All that stuff is really interesting and important. So on Wednesday, I published that. Wednesday is my day of like everything else, uh, still profile related, but how do I uh, distribute the profile more widely? So maybe I'll do a podcast, maybe, um, you know, I'll talk to someone to talk about like a collaboration on something. That's like my project day. And then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I work on the Sunday newsletter, meaning that I read the profiles, I write the summaries, I write the column at the top. It's a lot of content and I try to do it mostly, uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Although sometimes like right now I have pre-written some things that I can use for the column because it's kind of impossible to do all of that in three days. Um, And then Sunday I publish the newsletter. So essentially like my free days are Sundays and Wednesdays. Got it. Do you do it all yourself? I do it all myself because I'm crazy. And I'm like, until I have an absolute mental breakdown, then I'll get help. I don't think I'm there yet. (laughs) And I, I really enjoy it because people say like, oh, you could just get somebody to read the profiles and do the little summaries for the Sunday newsletter and that frees up your time. Yes, that would be a huge help. But for me, reading the profiles is how I do the homework for the dossiers. So I wouldn't feel like that's how I get ideas. I read a profile on someone and I get an idea for something else. So without that, it it would be hard for me to get ideas about anything else. I think it is quite a common thing that people find it hard to like know which bits to delegate because you've built it based on kind of the uniqueness of your brain and your mind and like stuff you find interesting. There's definitely a big part of that which could be automated or delegated, but it's quite hard, I think, to know what that is. Do you know what I mean? Like which is the unique and which is the stuff that's like actually in yes. you to do it and it's Absolutely. I I mean, I've experimented. So I'll I'll do like, okay, we'll have a guest column by X writer for the profile. And then people are like, oh, I liked it, but like, not really because it wasn't you. And it's like, oh, what part of the process can be automated? Could it be, you know, the research for the dossier? Could it be like something that's a little bit more objective that doesn't require my voice? Um, But it is hard when you build uh, a brand through your taste and your curation and your interest 
to put somebody else in and say they have the exact same taste and interest and I'll train them and whatever. It, it can be done. It, but I do, I do think it's like harder for personality based um, and interest based things to do that. I heard you talk recently about, um, and I actually tried to Google the word and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I was like, how do you spell it? Iliism? Iliism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. I've gotten so many questions about that word. (laughs) (laughs) It's I-L-L-E-I-S-M. I think you described it as it's almost like having a persona or having distancing between what you're doing and then who you are. Have you found any form of iliism where you create for yourself a separation between who Polina is as a person and, and who Polina is as, a, as an author? Absolutely. So iliism, I think it's a literary device like that's used. Basically, people refer to themselves in the third person, but it's also kind of a, a psychological concept where you see LeBron James being like, you know, LeBron, he, he, he's talking about himself, but he's talking about himself in the third person. The reason sometimes people do that is to distance their real self from the public persona that people criticize and, and talk about. So for me, I, I had to do that because um, I used to be really, really shy. And I realized quickly that being shy and introverted, probably not the best if you want to be a successful uh, writer or reporter or whatever. So in my mind, I was like, oh, it's great. I'm shy. I can write. So I will write and then publish articles. And then I never have to appear on video ever in my life. The problem becomes when you're working at Fortune or anywhere like that, where you have to go to conferences and you have to interview people on stage, or um, you have to do video interviews, all of that. Like I wanted to learn it. I just, I was like, oh, I don't have the personality for it. You realize quickly if you put a little bit of distance between who you think you are and who you need to be uh, at your work, it helps. Um, So I would kind of distance myself and Paulina the person at home and socially versus Paulina at work. Um, Because when I stepped out on to do a panel or a, a panel at a conference and I interviewed the person on stage in front of 400 people, then I would watch the recording and be like, damn, she's confident. But I saw it as a different person. You know what I mean? Like I didn't see it as myself. And I was like, I wish I had that confidence in my real life. And in the beginning, when you put distance between two different personas or identities, um, you because I started to identify like I'm one person at work and one person at home. Eventually, one of the identities catches up to the other. And so now I don't have a problem public speaking and doing things like that in my personal life. But um, it took a while to get there because I think it's easier to take criticism when you know that it's performative. <laughs> you know that I'm Paulina at work the reporter, this is part of the job. They're not attacking me, the person, they're attacking me, the reporter. And it's just like, it, psychologically, it's like a weird thing, but it, it makes it easier. When I was writing Term Sheet at Fortune, I was not born personally interested in deals and venture capital and startups. Like I had to find what was interesting to me and write about that topic, even though if you told me what would you like to do full time, it probably wasn't writing term sheet, um, but I had to do it. And I think like that was my role. Like that was my job. It wasn't, I, Paulina, love deal making. Um, but when I wrote that and I would get really, really critical feedback at times, it also, um, 
it like it it makes your skin thicker, right? Like when you get that first one, it's like, oh my God, they're attacking my writing. And then you realize, no, they're not attacking my writing. This is your job. And when you're doing this, this is a product you put out into the world. But that's why I say like you, to become a real writer, you need to put it out in public. It's going to get attacked. It's going to get criticized. And over time you kind of learn that. So yeah, you can write things that are personally interesting to you, but have that distance of being like, this is my work. <laughs> like they're not criticizing like my opinion on, you know, something I truly care about, like my family or something like that. It's, this is your job and you're putting out this product in the world and it will come under criticism, but that will make you better. I'm curious how accessible you think it is like as a route for others in terms of monetizing it and making it full time. Like Legion writes, I think it was something like 2% yep. of creators could get minimum wage and it was on Patreon, I think. Actually, how available is this as a route for people? It is really hard um, to to make something instantly, to monetize something very quickly. I wrote the profile for three years for free until I turned on the, it's now paid. The thing that I've learned is two things. One, you need to have consistency. If you're not willing to do something for five years, day in and day out, week after week to earn your audience or your readers uh, trust through consistency, they won't stick around. It's just plain and simple. You could be the best writer in the world. I don't care. They will not stick with you if you're very irregular and unpredictable and they don't know when they're going to get it. I have not missed a single week in sending it. And that's because I understand that I'm not the best writer. I probably don't have the best voice or whatever, but I know that people can trust me and they know they can trust me. And then three years later, when I turned on the paid option for people, they could trust me with their money because they knew that I wouldn't just drop it and say, I'm done. I'm taking your money with me. The second thing is that, and this is so important. And I think society and the way we kind of talk about it in business, we have it backwards is that you need a high quality product and then you need to figure out, you know, oh, like, here's how to monetize it. Okay. I think it's actually flipped in that you need to have a distribution funnel or channel or something first and then put the pot product through it. So what that means is for three years, I built up the profile to a level. There, there were thousands of people already reading it before I monetized it. I already had a Twitter audience. I already had like, they, I had different channels where I could tell people about the profile and they could sign up. It's really, really sad to see. And I've seen it so many times, really talented people put out really great products into the world without having that distribution channel, or at least without trying to partner with people who have the distribution to make it work. We live in an attention economy and you need to think about how can I capture people's attention and get them interested enough. So when I do launch my product, they, they know it's coming. So let's say like you don't have anybody and you're working on something really interesting. Tell people through the process about what you're working on. So they feel a little bit of skin in the game of like, I can't wait for her to launch this. And then once you launch it, you know, they sign up. Um, just constantly building uh, an audience or, or, or people like fellow readers who want to learn is really important uh, before launching a product. Do you have any tips for people who don't have any audience? Because I guess you were lucky in that you came from Fortune. Yeah. You had a bunch of connections. It would be interesting to know if you've had any 
failures, things where you overshot, you went for a cold outreach and they didn't get back to you or you tried to partner with someone and they weren't interested. Because I think sometimes people think, oh, it's easy for someone because they've got this. But actually, I think it's important to kind of land that message, which is everyone is trying all the time. Yeah, all the time. Um, So for me, yes, I came from Fortune, but you have to realize that like when you email somebody from an email that ends with at fortune.com, Melinda Gates and her team will probably respond. When you message them from at readtheprofile.com, sometimes there's absolutely nothing. And it's a double-edged sword because it's like, yes, people don't know who you are, but you can explain and make the case to them of why they should come to you in your platform. Uh, and you and, and you also don't have the baggage that some of these media organizations already have. The downside is they don't care or know who you are. Uh, but a really good example of this is that, for example, Elon Musk, every media company wants to get an interview with him. He doesn't anymore like to do interviews with traditional media. He went to Wait But Why, which is a legitimate blog, and he gave Tim Urban access for like a month to write this massive, massive post about Neuralink, his company. Um, and then when Vanity Fair reached out, he responded with, Vanity Fair sucks. So again, one, everybody knows who Vanity Fair is, but they have baggage. Tim Urban, maybe at the time, nobody knew who Wait But Why was, but he had a clean slate. He did good work, which Elon recognized. Um, so I always kind of approach it from that perspective you, yes, people don't know who you are. You have to work twice as hard to make, to explain why you, the profile makes sense to them. Um, and for me, it's like, maybe I don't have as many subscribers as other newsletters or other media organizations, but I have really, really high quality readers that you want to be in front of. So for example, I think if you're starting with nothing, you have to find people who already have distribution. If you know you have quality readers um, in in like a very specific demographic, I would write things. For example, I know that the co-founder of Uber subscribes to the profile. I know that Alexis Ohanian subscribes to the profile. So when I know that, I go to those people and I'm like, hey, like your my my audience's favorite profile recommendations, can you give me a few? And so Alexis responds, the co-founder of Uber responds and I make it into an article. They know it's for an article. And I'm like, hey, look at the people who's, look at the quality of the people who sign, who subscribe to the profile and here's their profile recommendations. That way you kind of, um, you show that you have a high quality audience that reads, reads high quality stuff that also helps build your brand. And by sending that article to someone being like, These are the people that you would be in front of if you do an interview with me, just builds your credibility. You want to do like these little things that build your credibility and show off your expertise. And how did you get people like that to sign up in the first place? I don't know. (laughs) It wasn't, it wasn't like active outreach to them. Like, Hey, you would like this. I think that consistency kind of compounds, right? So one person will share it on Twitter. Somebody else who follows them will see it. They'll sign up. And, um, David Perel said this once, and I can't get it out of my head. He said, everything that you create, everything that you put out on the internet is a, is a vehicle for serendipity. So I love that. for example, yeah, it, it, you never know what eyeballs you're going to get in front of when 
I published a dossier on Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I never once thought that that article would make it in front of him. But I did a very, very small thing that ended up being a big thing, which is that when I tweeted it, I tagged him on Twitter. I had no idea that he looks at his mentions on Twitter, but he does apparently. And he read it, he liked it, and he promoted it on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. There is no amount of like marketing dollars that I could have paid him to do a better job. Honestly, sometimes you'll get lucky and that'll happen and you'll get thousands of new subscribers. And other times you're going to have to write the article and then ask yourself, who can I send this to right now? Who can I forward this to that is likely to send it in the direction of the person that I want to reach? Doing that one thing for 10 minutes out of the day exponentially like increases your chances of getting lucky like that. It's important as well, just to remind everyone that this project comes from passion, because I think sometimes yeah. people <laughs> take these tips in isolation and it can be a bit like spammy or it can be a bit like, Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know people are profiling people for the sake of the audience and stuff like that and I think that I mean maybe it works I don't know but I doubt that that has the same kind of you know if you were to take these tips in isolation and out of context like I don't know if it would really have the same result yeah yeah, yeah. because for example when I interviewed Brandon Stanton who's the creator of Humans of New York I had tried to interview him for literally 10 years, since 2010. (laughs) I have so many emails to him and Twitter DMs and all this stuff. And I cannot tell you why he agreed in 2020 to do it. I have no idea, but I was just persistent. And in 2020, I was like, hey, I just wrote this thing about you that I think you'd find interesting. Please let me interview you. He does no interviews with traditional media. Because this was the first interview that he had done in so many years, I got a ton of traffic to that article, which then allowed people to discover the profile because it was rare and because he has such a massive audience. If it aligns with whatever you're trying to do, find the people who you want to interview, you genuinely are interested in learning from, and then it'll get you exposure to to their audience. And honestly, they don't need to be people with millions of people who follow them. It could be like, If you're a lawyer and you have a legal newsletter, go to another lawyer with 500 people following them, but you're still in another person's network and that will help you inadvertently. I I think by, by having, um, by surrounding yourself with people who think very differently from you, whether it's your husband or partner or whoever, it really, really helps. So for me, like I am very much creative in terms of like, I want to write and I want to send things and I want to interview people. Um, I, I don't think about the business that much. When I talk to him, he has an entirely different perspective. And sometimes we butt heads because I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about, because whatever. But, but it's good that he looks at it so differently because for example, I'll be like, I want to take three weeks and do this one project um, and interview all these people and do a series. And he's like, that's a great idea. Like, how will that help the profile grow? And then I'll be like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, isn't the point of doing this to have people see it? And I'm like, oh, I never thought about like, I'm doing this so that people see it. Sometimes it is good to have like passion projects and creative projects just for the sake of it. But but you always have to ask yourself, like, is this the best use of my time or am I going to do it? Nobody's going to read it. And I'll be like, oh, I wasted three weeks. But it's good to ask yourself these questions and then determine, like, what is the best outcome? 
I'm curious, like whether you've set up any processes or if there are any kind of go-to people that help you when you're kind of thinking through things. Yeah. So I think it's very important to have groups, especially when you're doing this by yourself, it can get pretty lonely. Um, The one thing about a newsroom that was really nice is you had all of the support. You had an editor, you had other reporters, you could ask questions. Uh, If you needed legal help, there was a lawyer on staff who could help you with uh, answer your questions. So now uh, it's very much just me writing and it's such a solitary activity that I look for opinions. So sometimes I'll send it to my friends who are still in journalism and say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, most of the time though, it is my husband that I make him sit and I read the whole thing to him. And then I ask him like, what do you think? By reading it out loud, it helps me catch errors because your eyes tend to miss a lot when you're skimming. So by reading it out loud, you hear how it sounds, you make changes, etc. He gives me his feedback. I probably take it or don't take it a lot of the time. I lean on basically people who um, are in similar but different fields. So for example, I have a friend uh, named Anna who works at a startup. And when we work together, like at a coffee shop, we're working on two totally different things. She's an, an education startup and I'm writing the profile. But sometimes I'll give her an idea and then she'll give me an idea because we see the world from such different um, lenses, actually very complimentary, even though it's so different. So I would say like, find people who, um, who have good intentions with, they want to help, but they come at it from such a different point of view that it makes you think and rethink like your assumptions about whatever you're doing. Like with the Sunday newsletter, sometimes one week, it won't be that good. And I know that the the readers know that, but it's okay because it's every single week with something that's like a longer project. I want to know that this is high quality and people think it's high quality. And if there's anything I can do to improve it ahead of time, I will do it. I sit down and I try to pre-write and and do dossiers, for example, that take me a very long time. Uh, But I'll work one weekend and be like, I'm going to do an extra one this week. So I've built a bank of them that there's now five. So if anything ever happens to me and I have to be gone for a month, I have five that I can just publish and continue to be consistent until I come back in a month. Um, So like creating a little bit of flexibility for yourself. um, If you know, God forbid something ever happens and you can't do it, uh, it's really helpful because again, people are like, it's okay, Paulina, like you can take a vacation. I know that, but there are people who pay for this and I'm not about to be like, you know what, you pay for it. Sorry, you're, I'm going to be gone for the next four weeks. So you're not going to get anything. I feel a deep responsibility to my readers who have supported me with their dollars to deliver every week. It's not about me. It's like, that, like these people have become part of a very close community to me. I will ask one more question around a household of two entrepreneurs. What are the stress levels like? Does it work better, you think, than, than one person being in full-time work? I like it because, well, in terms of stress level, like I think I am very, very like anxious and, oh my God, how is this going to go? And luckily, uh, my partner is very not, and he's very, very chill about everything. Um, so, so that's really helpful. I don't know if both of us were super anxious how that would work, but it's, it's really cool because I get ideas from him, even though it's different. And he gets ideas from me, even though it's different. I know some people are like, oh, we just don't talk about 
you know, work after 6 p.m. or whatever. It's not like that because I genuinely enjoy having those conversations and it's like a brainstorming thing for me. And I think being rigid can actually lead to arguments of like, it's 710, why are you asking me about the profile? And every once in a while, we'll set like an hour of let's only talk about the profile and things that I can do to grow. Because I think for me, the growth aspect of it is the hardest part of it. Like I I don't, you know, I wanted to grow organically, but how do I get it in front of new eyeballs and all that kind of stuff? And he has a lot of ideas. He used to run uh, growth for Facebook pages. So he like knows, okay, here's how the algorithms work and what you can do and things like that, that I don't ever think about. But I think like, yeah, I think relationships with two entrepreneurs, especially, huh, especially if you like are in complementary or the same field, I can see how things get um, difficult. But like, for example, I know a pair of founders, they're co-founders of a very successful startup and they're married and they, I mean, it's, it, it works because they are constantly um, focused on like improving each other and learning new things. And I think if you approach it with a mindset of like, I'm flexible and I'm willing to listen to your ideas instead of just shoot them down all the time. I think it's really, really great. People don't really talk about relationships and work very mm-hmm. much. And I think because it is a so like a, it is a personal topic, but I think people do say like the thing that I'm sure you've read this in, in many of your profiles, actually it's really important, like the life decision that you make of you. Absolutely. Because you're getting that energy every day. You're getting are they supportive? Are they helping? Are they, you know, do they understand, you know, what you're yep. doing and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think it is. It's it probably has like an outsized impact on what you're doing, um, and it's also helpful to have somebody believe in what you're doing and and say like, no, you are good at this. Like you should pursue it because I think if I was with somebody who was very much like, oh God, you're gonna quit your job and do like, I, I think that 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 also kind of hurts a lot of people that maybe they're with somebody who's not interested in this stuff. So you definitely have to make sure that you're willing to grow and learn together and that your values align like that instead of one person's one person's like, I want to grow and I want to learn. And the other person's like, ah, I'm very like comfort oriented. Let's just chill and stay in our box. Just one thing I wanted to ask, which I think is actually so important, especially for the profile. Lots of people like talking about theories and like models. Have you come up with, or have you noticed any, any like ways in which people have successfully integrated theories into real life. So moving away from just like talking constantly about like stoicism or whatever to actually like changing their brain or their routines. Yes, uh, that is the entire point, I think, of the profile <laughs> is that I love mental models as much as anybody. I love the the, the frameworks uh, and the theories, but it's so hard to actually implement it. Um, and so that's why I focus on, yes, there's this like mental model here, but like who is the person who's actually integrated it in their life and used it and things like that. So you'll find, for example, when I do um, a profile, um, there's techniques to try and they're like actual practical things that people have done. So for example, Kobe Bryant, when I did one on him, the, the idea of distancing and distancing language and how to not take things personally was that he created an alter ego in which he was the black mamba on the court. He was Kobe 
later or, you know, in his personal life. But when he went out on the court and people booed Kobe, he was like, that's okay. Cause that's, that's not me right now. Now I'm the black mama. So like in, in you learn to integrate these things into your life, uh, practically through the lens of how other people have done it. Sarah Blakely, she created Spanx. The way that she reframed failure in her mind because she got rejected so much is that she saw it as opportunity. And the way she saw it as opportunity is because her dad, when they were little at the dinner table would say, what is one thing you failed at today? So she started associating the word failure with what risk did you take that didn't work out? And what risk are you going to take tomorrow? How are you going to try essentially? So she saw failure and was like, if you're not failing or getting rejected, it means you're not trying hard enough. So things like that, like little tidbits here and there like that um, have really, really helped me in my own life uh, because I'm able to have a proxy for this concept and this theory and like, here's how this person did it that I can apply to my own life. So much of the world and what we learn and stuff is actually socially learned, right? Like how we were brought up, it's who the people were around, all that kind of stuff. And it's just interesting how like some things, like I feel like a growth, the growth mindset is a great example of something which weirdly is quite quick to implement into your life. Like you just hear, maybe it was me personally, but I, th- I feel like it's a thing that most people find quite easy to implement. They go, okay, it's like a trigger. It's like, I, see, I hear failure or I think failure in my brain. I'm going to reframe it as a, as a growth mm-hmm. experience. Where there are other things like, I don't know, stoicism, I think is maybe a good example of where it's your brain is too quick. Like you need something like meditate, like an actual practice, like meditation to give you the space in order to like use that theoretical framework. Does yes. that make sense? Like, like what is the, what is the trigger kind of, and then how do you exactly. yeah, uh, counteract it? Yes. So um, for me, one that I've personally implemented in my life that I see over and over again, uh, now that I know about it is the mental model, like Hamlin's razor, which basically means um, don't attribute to malice, what could be negligence or ignorance. So let's say like, we're over here talking and we're in person and you knock my drink over. And I'm like, oh my God, you did that on purpose because you hate me. (laughs) And we're so quick to take things personally, especially right now in today's world where everybody's taking things personally, that you are always blaming somebody else for your problems and for things that happen to you. And it's just like, it's so exhausting. And I was very much like that where somebody would say something I'm sure is an offhanded comment they did not mean, and I would immediately have a reaction. So that's not good in your relationships. It's not good in your work life. It's not good in any of that. So I wrote about it. I wrote about Hamlin's Razor. I used people as examples. And then when this happens, I always, it's just, it's again, like almost like a immediate reaction. Somebody says something, I'm about to react. And I'm like, all right, hold on. Do they do this on purpose or did they were they just careless and didn't think about it the second that you assume that somebody didn't do it out of malice it just gives you that space to be like hey you know i i could talk to you about it now you know and tell you i don't like that you did that but i'm not immediately going to like lay blame and start yelling and be upset and just all this nonsense and i think that one thing has um it's made me a more rational and logical person, which has actually been really helpful uh, because I don't constantly have 
exhausting emotional reactions to everything. Uh, it's good in business and it's literally good everywhere else. Um, and the, the thing is, sometimes I'll need a little bit more time and I do that by exercising. So I'll go on a run or I'll like do 30 minutes of a bar class or a yoga class or something like that. And it just like allows you, gives you space. It gives you just that moment of like, I need distance from the situation and it helps you get better. Because if you take that example with like, I think it's a really good example. If you take that example of someone spills a cup of coffee, it's not like, okay, two examples that are sort of similar, but different. Once the coffee gets spilled, the other one is someone sends you a text that feels like a bit, I don't know, that you can't read the tone or something. The one with the tone, you, it feels like you have a moment to think about it because you physically can't reply that quickly, like with your right. response. Whereas if someone spills a cup of coffee, you literally can go off the handle straight away, right? And I think that's the thing I find interesting is like how we, it's like the four agreements or something. Mm. You know, one of the things is like, don't take things personally. It's like, it's all very well reading that, but like, how do you actually integrate that into your life? And is it literally just you read something enough or you think about it enough that you start to kind of just change your attitudes? I'm just curious on like, what is the behavior change model that like underpins yeah. these changes? I think it's having the vocabulary for it because before I knew about that, I, I never was aware of it. Um, Shane Parrish has a good example. He says, every time that somebody shoves us in the subway or spills a cup, a drink on our couch or something like that, we always forget that we've been that person where we accidentally shoved somebody or done yeah. something not for any reason, but by being, you know, careless or an accident, whatever. So it's like just knowing, having that like perspective of, Oh, this is, this is a, a thing. Like this is a mental framework. Um, am I falling victim to it? I, I love this question. I love that you're asking me because if you, I, I did an interview for the profile with James Clear and I asked him this exact thing oh, and I asked him, yeah, I asked him three different ways because I could, like yeah. I was trying to get it across. Basically what I was saying, I was like, it's very um, obvious. Like, how do you stop smoking? Okay. You have a trigger, then you have a thing, then you like repeat the process. Mm -hmm. It's a physical thing. Right. Yeah. But how do you stop worrying? For example, like, cause I was mm -hmm. having trouble with that. I was like, I don't know how to stop mentally a mental habit from happening. And, and James was like, yeah, I've been thinking about this too. It's much harder because it happens so quickly in your mind. So he was saying uh, in the interview that he was working on something that's like, here's how you stop mental habits versus like physical habits. It's, it's harder, but you just like, I think it's the distance thing. You need to like put a little bit of um, room for, okay, I got the text stop, pause, think, and then respond. Whereas like, if it's coffee in your bed, you're immediately like, ah, but you just need to like build that distance into it. I feel like it's almost like the thing is just self-awareness. Like mm -hmm. in its most simple, like if you want to, I'm sure there's a way better model that hopefully someone will come up with. And I think vocabulary, like that's exactly it. Like naming something yeah. means you're less, because I'm actually, I read these kind of books and I, and yeah. some of them have changed my life and some haven't at all. I think sometimes it is about reading something at the right time. Mm. Um, I read recently on the recommendation of Morgan Housel, it's called The Choice uh, by Edith Eva Eager. And it is the best book I've read in quite some time. And it is very life-changing. Um, so I did a dossier on her and it's just 
really interesting how she sees the world because she um, she was in Auschwitz and then she made it out and now she's in her 90s and she became a therapist who um, specializes with uh, PTSD, people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And she basically explains how there is a difference between being a victim, like victimized and victimhood. And like everybody in their life, she says, well, you will be victimized by someone, whether it's a bully, a partner, a whatever. But it's up to you to decide, like, will I be a victim of this for the rest of my life? Or will I take something from it and, and like, learn to move on? But the way she thinks and the way she puts things in perspective, like, really resonates uh, because it's practical. And I think most books are very theoretical. So it, it's, I mean, it's a great book. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. And if you enjoyed this, you might enjoy the newsletter. I send it out every two weeks and it covers psychological tricks and social science and my latest thoughts on how you can be creative and make the most out of your time before you run out of hours. You can sign up through the link on this episode or just search Out of Hours Substack.